0: So this is Sharice Compton, everyone. And we're so thankful and blessed to have her start our year off on the topic of steadfastness. Um, I know Sharice from small group. We've been in small group together. Sharice and Jared have actually been members here at the North Church for just three years. They came to the Minneapolis area from Kenosha, Wisconsin, is where they were right before here. in 2020, the middle of the pandemic, what a time to like move your family, children, of <laughs> varying ages. Um, but how fortunate we are because they came to work at Bethlehem um, College and Seminary. Sharice teaches freshman grammar and composition as well as coordinates for the Seminary Wives Program. And that's new this year, correct? It's restructured. It's restructured. <laughs> so we're very thankful that... Um, Their family is serving, their mission is aligned with us as our church. Um, Jared and Sharice have three children, Asher, Jude, and Haven. Haven is their youngest, and as of February, she will have three teenagers, which is her favorite season of (laughs) parenting. Isn't that exciting? Um, And then... um, Also, this is what Sheree said to say, which is lovely. When I am not teaching, I'm likely cheering on my kids at soccer games and track meets, fitfully writing or watching Chelsea FC soccer games. Some of my favorite things are writing and teaching Bible studies, cooking in a quiet kitchen. Don't we all? Only a quiet kitchen. kitchen. (laughs) Reading fiction, drinking coffee, eating out with friends, taking long walks through the woods, and traveling. So, Sharice, thank you so much.
1: Uh, I'm so grateful to be here. I've heard such good things about moms from Kara and from Casey Lichty and Carrie Hoyleen. So I've been curious about what goes on here and just I'm excited to be a part of it. So thank you for having me. Well, on your table, you should have a handout that has the words to Psalm 121 on it. So if you want to grab hold of that, we're going to read that in just a moment. But Psalm 121.5 declares, the Lord is your keeper. Well, in our family, we really only ever use that word keeper in one context in soccer. So when I come to this verse and I hear that the Lord is my keeper, I kind of immediately envision him vigilantly guarding a soccer goal from offensive attacks. And that's not really a wrong conclusion, but the psalmist has a much fuller picture in mind when he declares that the Lord is your keeper. So in the Old Testament, and real quickly, we're just kind of gonna walk through Psalm 121. I'll read it. We'll walk through it a little bit just to understand what it's saying. And then I'm gonna tell you how the Lord has been my keeper. But in the Old Testament, this word keeper often comes up in relationship to sheep. So you can think like a shepherd. A shepherd not only protects his sheep, but he nurtures it. Sometimes he protects it even from itself, because we know sheep are not the most intelligent animals. Uh, The word comes up in agriculture, so in the care of vineyards and forests, so there's a pruning aspect to keeping. There were keepers of the royal wardrobes, that would be nice. There were those who kept young women, so protecting them from predators. There were keepers of prisons, so those who kept harm from breaking out. And there were doorkeepers, those who kept harm from getting in. But the common thread among these is a vigilant guarding to protect and to nurture. So tonight, that's what I want to talk about, or today, excuse me, that's what I want to talk about, the Lord as our keeper. The Lord keeps vigilant guard over your life, protecting you from all evil, and nurturing you so that you flourish all the days of your life. All right, let's read now. I'm, just listen while I read Psalm 121, and then we'll, like I said, take a few minutes to unpack it, and then we'll move on from there. Psalm 121. the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. That's a lovely thought, isn't it? Have you ever lifted your eyes? Have you ever gone outside and just kind of lifted your eyes like the psalmist to the hills in wonder? Well, two years ago, my family and I, spent some time in Europe, and we found ourselves near the top of the highest peak in the Alps, Mount Blanc. And the thin air and the dizzying height really combined to make us feel pretty fragile and really small. And it was a little scary. I didn't think I was afraid of heights, but yes, I am, apparently. But mostly, it was just breathtaking. As, but, you know, as we lifted our eyes up, up, we looked to the highest peak, we kind of looked up into the clouds that were obscuring the mountains, we kept looking up, up into the heavens where the one who made these mountains sits on his throne. It was soul stirring to feel how small and fragile we were compared to the mountains, kind of to, to know that a brisk wind could topple you, to know that if you lost your footing, it could end in death. Or if you got lost up there in the descending darkness, what might happen to you? But then to remember how much greater our God is than even the beautiful Alps. And great as he is, he is the one who calls you your helper in verse 1 and your keeper in verse 5. So the hills, the mountains, the stars, the vastness of the universe, you know, I look outside and I don't know if you've noticed, but you can see Venus in the morning. We look outside and see all these things and they combine not only to show us the glory of our maker, but also the unfathomable truth that the one who made these takes thought of you you are his special creation. And if he can hold the universe together, if he can cause the earth to bring forth food enough to feed all of its inhabitants, if he can call the stars by name, it is nothing for him to help and to keep you. So look up. That's what these verse one teaches us. Look up. The one who made the heaven and the earth is your keeper. Well, in verse 3, the psalmist begins to speak of how he helps and keeps us. And it says, he will not let your foot be moved. So he helps you by keeping you from slipping or tripping or falling. He makes sure that nothing uproots you. In God's care, the ground beneath you, whether you realize it or not, is always firm and stable. And he can do this. He can keep that ground stable because in verse 4, we're told, He never grows weary or even drowsy. He never sleeps. So I don't know about you, but I'm tired right now. (laughs) I spend a lot of my life tired, and I bet, as moms of littles, you can relate. I can't even imagine not nodding off the minute my family turns on a movie. But God is vigilant, night and day. He steadfastly, unwearyingly keeps your foot from slipping. He never gets distracted by problems, he never leaves his post, he has never once nodded off or been in a daze or got lost in a daydream. I mean, just think, even in the last week, of the kinds of trouble your kids have gotten into because you had to run to the bathroom. (laughs) Or you had to switch the laundry or prepare a meal or you thought, I'll just take this phone call real quick. Well, God's vigilance ensures that nothing ever surprises or frustrates him, he is unfazed by the things that easily overwhelm and defeat us. He is the only one who steadfastly stays awake and alert, happily going about his work of keeping your foot from slipping. Well, in verses 5 and 6, we see that the Lord shields us from the perils of the day He shields us from the perils of the night, and we can assume he shields us from every other peril in between the night and the day. And what power do you have against the sun? What power do you have against the forces of hell? And What can you do? What can you do? Somebody who has to sleep for hours every day, what can you do to avert the disasters that come in the night? Well, we can't do anything against these forces should they ally themselves against us, but our keeper can. And in verse 7, that is made very clear to us, and this is not hyperbole. Look at it. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Again, what a beautiful thought. But can it really be true? If you're like me, then you have often felt very much like your feet were slipping. You may have felt exposed to the perils of the day and vulnerable at night. But this psalm invites you to consider another perspective on what you might think of as evil. You know, when I was young, the presence of suffering in the lives of good people was really the biggest hurdle for me to accept the God of the Bible. But what the Lord has so graciously and steadfastly shown me is that trials and suffering, these things that we can perceive as evil, are actually good gifts from a God who has promised to keep us. When trials come, Psalm 121 assures us that he hasn't let his guard down, he hasn't fallen asleep on the job, to use the doorkeeper analogy, all the things that have gotten through the door are actually the tools that he is using to keep you. If Psalm 121 is true, then whatever hardships that he allows in our lives are no danger to us. You know, we've been studying James in Women's Bible Study this fall, and I like the way he talks about trials. He says, Various trials. Isn't that a perfect way just to sum up our existence under the sun? Various trials. Trials of all different sorts and of all different degrees of severity. And as an adult, my trials have taken the shape of poverty, sickness, some relational difficulties, thwarted expectations, and garden variety loneliness, to name a few. And these are probably very similar to some of the trials and the hardships you've faced. But I want to talk about two trials in particular and how God kept me from all evil in those trials. The first is the trial of what looked like destitution. Now, Jared and I spent the first 10 years of our life in grad school. First me, then him. He finally graduated with his Ph.D. on our 10-year anniversary. (laughs) And just for context, we will celebrate 20 years in about two months. So half of our marriage was in school. Well, students, of course, are proverbially poor. When I got out of grad school, I got a part-time job teaching English and literature and composition at a community college in Detroit where my husband was now in school getting his Master of Divinity. And to make ends meet, because we needed to pay to live and we needed to pay for more school, I picked up other jobs, like working for Curves. Does anybody remember Curves? <laughs> okay, I worked for Curves and I cleaned some homes. Well, I hoped to get good teaching experience so that I could eventually become a full-time um, instructor at the college, but that was not to be, because I, after a couple semesters, I lost my job due to an accreditation issue. And then shortly after we were pregnant with our first baby and we were planning a move for more schooling, the economy tanked and recession hit. And it prevented us from selling our home, which we needed to sell to move. We were severely upside down in our mortgage. And we actually ended up moving without selling or even having renters. And after about a month of desperation, we did find renters to cover most of the mortgage. But during this time we lived in campus housing, which is as bad as it sounds, (laughs) and we made well below the poverty level, even using government programs to buy some basic food items. But the real financial tragedy hit later, when we had to hastily move back to that house that we hadn't been able to sell. Our renters had lost their job, and they were just vacating the state as quickly as possible. And we couldn't begin to cover the mortgage and our rent, so we just hastily moved back to Detroit. Well, my parents kindly offered to pay to have our floors refinished. So we were moving into a 1950s ranch home, and the floors were in really rough conditions. They said, well, we'll, we'll have them refinished right before you move back in. So I found a company to do the work, and then on Halloween weekend of 2010, Jared, a six-month pregnant me, a three-year-old boy and a soon-to-be two-year-old boy, unloaded all our worldly goods into the garage of our old house and then camped out with the grandparents while our floors were refinished. Well, unfortunately, or so it seemed at the time, the company who refinished our floors left hot bags of sawdust from sanding our floors leaning against the detached garage. And if you've ever refinished floors, you know that the finish they put on them is highly flammable. And so when they're sanded and there's a lot of heat involved, they easily ignite into flame. And when they were sealed into plastic bags with very little ventilation, that is exactly what happened. Those bags burst into flame and they burned the garage down with all of our stuff inside. Well, to make matters worse, and this is where the total destitution part comes in, we had just canceled our rental insurance policy on all of our belongings that morning, thinking the policy we had on the home we owned would be what we needed. It would cover anything. But when we called about the homeowner's policy, we learned that the company with the policy on our house had lapsed coverage. I don't know how we had missed this, but they had lapsed coverage on the detached garage. The house was covered, but not the garage, (laughs) and that's where all of our stuff was. So suddenly, we were facing a devastating loss of property without any insurance to back it up. I'll get back there. But the next trial was one of sickness. About a year after my daughter was born, I hit an unusually bad period of sleeping. Now, I've struggled with insomnia um, since high school, but this time I found myself skipping entire nights of sleep sometimes two three nights a week and From there that just takes a toll on your body from there. My health declined. I started to have joint and muscle pain and the worst of it was just unexplained excruciating back pain and rupturing ovarian cyst. So between the cyst, between the back pain, about one day each week, I could not get out of bed because the pain was so severe. And I would just kind of try to find a place, lie very still, where I could tolerate the pain. Um, And I would try not to even speak because sometimes that would just ignite the pain. Well, my husband, meanwhile, was still trying to write a dissertation, teach seminary classes at this point, and my kids were four, three, and one. So, where was God in all of this? These things felt evil to me. Well, you've you've left your post, Lord. You let something slip through. I don't think that was intentional. But how wrong I was, because those things weren't the real evil. The real evil that God steadfastly kept me from were the evil intentions of the enemy, for sure. But also, the evil inclinations of my own heart when we lost everything i had to face the reality that i had been placing my hopes and my faith in so many other things than god i was trusting money to do for me what really only god can do for me i was looking for pe- i was looking to people actually to take care of me and there were particular people who i kind of thought should step in and provide for us But often the people who I looked to for help didn't help, at least not in the way I wanted to be helped. But God protected me from the evil inclination of my heart toward bitterness and resentment in this trial. He trained me to turn to him, to ask, to provide by whatever means he chose, and provide he did. And often the provision came from the most unexpected sources. So, it would come from people I didn't know very well, but I would learn eventually they knew a little bit about financial hardship. It came from strangers, people who heard about our predicament through mutual friends and family. It came from our unchurched neighbors who gave us brand new furniture and brand new mattresses. You know, I didn't understand why the people I expected to take care of me didn't do as much as I thought they should. But God began to replace the proud resentment in my heart with some Christian charity. They're just people. They're just people. God is working in them and for them, too. And it's not really their job to take care of me. That's God's job. And so that became my mantra through those years. Anytime I would feel a little bristling inside, like, why haven't you done anything? I would say, it's God who takes care of me. It is God who takes care of me. So I repeated this truth over and over again whenever I was attempted to accuse those around me of not caring for me the way I thought they should. And I still speak these words to my own heart when old temptations kind of make a surprise attack <laughs> from the shadows. God takes care of me. The Lord is my keeper. Well, during this time, God humbled me by teaching me a lot, but one thing in particular, it's okay to be needy and it's okay to receive help from people. One of the reasons I didn't, one of the reasons I don't think people reached out to me like I thought they should is, I think they just didn't know the extent of it. And I learned that if we had spoken more humbly and not kept things so close because we were too proud to be needy, I think people may have stepped in more. Sometimes people just need to be told how they can help. It's hard for them to know otherwise. But when they do know, they're often eager to help. And I also learned to humbly receive the help they offered. Not everyone can give money, but there are such dear souls who will give from all their other resources to help you. And so I learned to accept help from people who said, well, I can come paint. Great, come paint. Are you good at cutting in, though? But I learned to say yes. Others volunteered to bring meals, and this is where I let my husband know that under no circumstances was he ever allowed to turn down a meal. (laughs) Some volunteered childcare. Others had a long distance baby shower for us and sent us some much needed new baby supplies because all that stuff was lost in the fire. But God humbled me through this, and he taught me a lot about my own self-righteousness, my lack of faith, and how he redeems what may have been meant for evil for good. And it wasn't just for my spiritual good, but it was actually for good for us in this life materially. You know, that cancellation cancellation letter we had sent the morning of the fire for our rental policy, there was a hang up, somehow it got delayed in being faxed. And when it did go through, it just sat on the fax for 24 hours before it was picked up by the people working at the insurance company. And so they didn't cancel our policy until a day after the fire. So we did have some insurance that we did not expect. And what a simple thing, easy enough for God to do. He just prevented that letter from being seen. We were too dumb to know not to send it. <laughs> so, but he took care of us. He kept us. Well, through this, God began to work in me a calm, Confidence, or you might say steadfastness, Just, but it's a confidence that God would indeed keep me. And then through the trial, God also began to cultivate in me a much more generous spirit as I began to look to God as my helper and God as my keeper and not to those around me. I stopped expecting so much from other people and started being grateful for all the ways that people express their varied care. So God kept us through that trial. He protected us from any evil our enemy may have intended, and he protected us from the evil inclinations of our own hearts. But God wasn't done keeping us. That fire, interestingly enough, ended up being the thing that put us back on our feet financially. Through the gifts of God's people, through insurance, through, a little, through some good stewardship of the insurance payouts, we were able, and this is really corny, corny but it just fits, we were able to build back better. <laughs> we did some much needed repairs in our home, increasing its value. We were able to replace what we needed slowly, and we even paid down a chunk of our mortgage, which lowered our monthly payment, and it made us much more comfortable just on the month-to-month basis. And then, four years later, when we faced another move, we were no longer upside down in our mortgage, and we were able to sell that house. In fact, it was to the first person who came to see it. So God, he had the long view in mind. He knew that fire, what it would do for us in this life, but he also was protecting us from the evils of our own hearts. Now, the season of acute insomnia, pain, and sickness was really mystifying, and still, after dozens of doctor's appointments and tests, I can't really tell you what happened. (laughs) But at times, I know that I nearly despaired that I would be able to even mother my own children. I was spending so much of my kids' childhood in bed. You know how your children will go to Sunday school and they'll fill out these little they'll finish these little sentences. My mom always says, my mom always what all I was I about wept one day because my oldest son brought home, and no less than three times did he mention the fact that I lie in bed. <laughs> oh, I was a little demoralizing. But I I remember calling out instructions to my boys trying to give them instructions for helping to potty train their younger sister because I couldn't get out of bed to do it that day. So this trial, while it was hard for me, it was really hard on my husband and it was hard for my children. This is not what they expected from a mother. Well, I was very humbled by this. I couldn't parent the way I wanted to. I needed so much help. I was exhausted. I missed lots of opportunities. I didn't teach my kids the things I wanted to and my son was growing increasingly angry. And as he got bigger and stronger, well, the anger got a little scarier. And the faithless cry of my heart at that time was, you aren't giving me what I need. How can I do the work that you've told me to do if I can't even get out of bed or if you refuse to give me sleep? It was a little bit of my own Job moment. Though I don't want to trivialize what Job suffered by comparing it to my trials. But it was as if the Lord said to me, who do you think makes your work successful? Did I think by my own strength and wisdom I was going to create faith in my children or I would somehow sanctify them? I mean, I would never have said that out loud, of course, but my angry and despairing response to this trial in particular revealed that, yeah, I think I really did think that this was all in my hands. Well, through that trial and others, I remember one time just crumpling to the floor after another discouraging exchange with my son and battling my own mental fog because of sleep deprivation and whatever else was going on i just crumpled to the floor and i cried out to the lord like what am i supposed to do help me and again the lord filled me with a sense of calm confidence and i just laid it out before him this is beyond me i don't have the resources to change him And even if I had my health and a well-rested, unfoggy mind, I would be powerless. You have to do the work, Lord. And that began a new season of prayerful dependence on the Lord. He showed me that unless he built the house, my labor was in vain. And he made my labor feel really, really, really vain for a while until I learned to entrust it to him and ask him to make me fruitful. Well, in those days, I also learned that God's promise to supply our needs is real. He does give what we need, and what he gives is sufficient. I didn't appreciate what the Lord was giving me, because I wanted an abundance of strength. I wanted restorative sleep. I wanted pain-free days, and I wanted sweet, responsive children. But what I got was just enough to do the next thing, and then the next thing after that. He kept my foot from slipping, distributing grace as I needed it, one step at a time, so that I was never confused about where the strength to fulfill my responsibilities came from. But not only did God guard me from evil during these trials, he nurtured my faith so that I actually flourished during them. He did this through something I never expected— He started dropping little teaching opportunities in my lap. You know, I had trained to teach English literature, but he said, I'd like you to teach the Bible. And then he just gave me little opportunities. Here, teach at this Titus 2 conference. How about a mother-daughter banquet? Fill in for this Sunday school class. Speak at the women's Christmas outreach. Hold a book study in your home. Write a Bible study and another. And another and the opportunities just kept coming so many and such varied opportunities to write about and to teach the Bible see God knew just what it would take to drive me deep into the word and to firmly plant me there and he did not hesitate to do it it took lying on my bed of pain and searching for God in his word And such good, that forced time in the word, because I'm not sure I would have done it if I hadn't had the pressures and the deadlines hanging over me. So such good, that forced time in the word has done for my soul. So much good that I never, ever turned down an opportunity to teach or speak about the Lord. That's why I came here today, (laughs) even if I had to bring a box of tissues with me. Well, when I dug into the Word, I found a treasure beyond anything I could have imagined. I found God himself. I found Jesus, who had suffered so much that he could compassionately offer help, all the grace and mercy I needed when I was suffering. I found the God who shielded me from the attacks of the enemy and who protected me from even my own evil desires. I found a God who taught me to cry out to him all through the night when neither of us was sleeping. And I found a God who humbled me only to exalt me by giving me more and more of himself through the study of his word. It was during this time in the word where I finally realized how much he loves me. And I learned there are no limits to what he will do and will not do in order to keep me from this time forth and forevermore. And so when another trial of a different sort showed up at my door, this time it was a move, our seventh, away from a place I loved and from a church that was very dear to me and what seemed like such fruitful ministry, my perspective was entirely different. Oh, I cried, and I begged him not to make me do it, and I gave him so many reasons why it was a bad idea. Lord, we have such good ministry here. What, are gonna, what will happen to these new Christians on our soccer team? What about this small group we're leading? What, what will happen to these boys who depend on Jared like a father? What will happen to my own kids? They'll be so bitter about having to leave a place they love. Is this really what you're requiring of me? But even when I kind of wanted to accuse the Lord of not making a wise decision or of not caring, I, I really couldn't get the words out of my mouth this time. Not really, because what I found was a new steadfastness of spirit that rose up within me that quickly crushed that rebel sigh and the rising doubt, as the song calls it. And I knew it would be hard. I knew we would all just kind of have to be sad for a while. There's just no circumventing the pain of a trial. You have to experience the pain to get the outcome but I knew there would be so much goodness both in the trial itself and on the other side of the trial that I was able to say, okay Lord, just help me. Well Psalm 121 teaches us not to fear the threats of the day or the night or the evil intentions of any enemies because all those things we might perceive as evil surging past God's defenses are nothing of the kind Your keeper vigilantly superintends all the experiences of your life so that rather than succumbing to the evil, you are kept from it. It is through trials that our faith grows. It is through trials that our ability to experience God as he is, as our powerful helper, as our unwearied keeper and friend, you get more and more of God as your friend when you go through a trial. His trials are gifts, and it is, you know this, it is the testimony of every one of his saints that they are worth it to experience God and his love and to be made just a little more like him. You know, when I was 20-something, if you would have told me, here, take a house fire, here, take some excruciating pain, and and for the exchange here, you're going to get virtue, I would have been like, no thanks, I'm good. I can live with the flaws in my character. But could I really? Like the wisest of parents, God doesn't give his children what they think they want or what they think they need. Nope. Because he keeps and protects them even from themselves. He will do whatever it takes to grow you, too. For me, that was a little poverty a little sickness, all the accompanying trials of moving seven times, plus all the run of the mill stuff with parenting and marriage and life in a cursed world. But he is a personal God and your trials, like all the gifts God sends, your trials will be perfectly tailored to you, custom made to build up what is lacking in your character. So when trials come and you're tempted to think, Whoa, surely God did not mean for that to slip past his defenses. Or if you want to accuse him of not keeping you from all evil, reevaluate your perspective in the light of Psalm 121. Your help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, and he has promised to keep you. But I think we should consider the reverse as well. If trials and suffering are good gifts from our keeper, what would it mean for God to never send trials and suffering? What if the Lord had allowed me to continue blindly on my way, clinging to money and possessions, hoping they would take care of me? What if he let me rot in my own self-righteousness and I turned into a hardened, bitter, resentful old woman, hating people for not meeting my exacting standards? Have you met people like that? What if I still thought that I had the power to make my work fruitful? Well, without trials, we'd all be poisoned by sin, and we'd still be clinging, clinging to the things that are killing us. But God loves us too much to let us rot in our sin. He keeps us even from the evil in our own hearts. And he sent his own son to experience true evil so that we could forevermore be kept from it. I'll close us in prayer, and then there are a few discussion questions on your table. Oh, Jesus, thank you for your suffering. Thank you for being faithful and steadfast and enduring all the attacks of the evil one thank you for becoming like us in our weakness. You too were tired and lonely and misunderstood and hated and rejected and falsely accused. And so when we call out to you in our trials, you turn to us with compassion, eagerly dispensing all the grace and mercy we need. Help us, Lord, to be steadfast as you are steadfast. And I pray that you would use this beautiful psalm in our lives to Reframe our thinking when trials come, that you are our keeper and you will keep us from all evil. In Jesus' name.